I was born and raised in Ohio, so what I find the passion for what we're developing here is it gives it an opportunity to make coal economical, but at the same time carbon conscious. Then that gives coal a fighting chance. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about carbon capture, the process of separating carbon dioxide from the resulting flue gases whenever a fossil fuel like coal or natural gas is burned for energy. This was my entry into the energy sector nearly 10 years ago, and it is something that I found myself circling back towards in recent years. So why is carbon capture a big deal? Because if CO2 from power emissions can be captured instead of emitted, it would do more for net reduction reductions of carbon than quadrupling renewable generation. Together, coal and natural gas make up 60% of the power generation in this country. Renewables make up less than 15%. Still, I am for an all-of-the-above approach to energy policy, which includes more of all types of energy, but any serious policymaker will tell you baseload fossil generation has to be part of that mix. Coal has taken a serious hit. 30% of the mix last year, down from over half of the energy portfolio 10 years ago. That's huge. So how does carbon capture work? First off, after a fossil fuel is burned, a cocktail of gases result. Water vapor, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, and CO2, which is about 15 to 25 percent of the mix. If you want to isolate the CO2, the removal process is expensive in both cost and energy expended. During the years when I was representing the clean coal energy groups, as much as a third of the energy produced from a coal plant could be needed to run a carbon capture plant on the back end. It was the carbon capture group's single biggest challenge, how to handle this parasitic load. In the years that followed, an idea that's grown is making the carbon easier to capture on the front end rather than post-combustion. This family of technologies is typically known as oxycombustion or oxyfuel. Rather than burning fossil fuels in air, which as you know is mostly nitrogen, an oxygen pure environment will produce a purer stream of CO2 in the flue gases. A year ago I happened to sit next to one of the architects of the Net Power Project based out of Durham, North Carolina. They are about to fire up a pilot facility near Houston, which uses a derivative of this oxyfuel concept, and we wish them the best. They get a lot of press and need no help from me, that's for sure. However, an oxycombustion or oxyfuel system also has an energy penalty. It requires pure oxygen, which requires an air stripper, and that can use a little juice. Still, a lot less than a post-combustion carbon capture system. Was oxycombustion the most energy efficient way to go? Today's guest could have an answer. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Tong, Assistant Research Professor at the Chemical Engineering School at The Ohio State University in Columbus. I met Andrew while researching a technical issue at work regarding boiler flue gases, completely unrelated to carbon capture. But 
If you've ever visited a university department, you'll see these big posters advertising research efforts underway, and one of them was about carbon capture. So, after Andrew helped me with my work issue, I asked him about the carbon capture technology they were developing, and he told me about chemical looping. The underlying technology has been around since the 50s, but the progress Andrew and his team at OSU have made is extraordinary. Essentially, the technology relies on small iron oxide pellets, which look like buckshot, and they are circulated or looped through a system. The oxygen in the iron oxide pellet is picked up by the carbon being burned, resulting in CO2. These pellets are light, inexpensive, and robust. They can make thousands of trips round and round, trading the oxygen with carbon and back again. The beauty of this process is that the iron oxide is doing the work that an air-stripped oxygen-pure environment would provide, hence very little extra energy to isolate the carbon dioxide. I'll let our guests explain this better. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Andrew Tong. We're here with Dr. Andrew Tong, OSU Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering Department at The Ohio State University. Always need to make sure that's correct. Andrew, let's start out with some basics for folks out there. Let's talk about the reason why your team developed this technology. Explain to the folks why capturing carbon is such an energy intensive process. So in normal processes for CO2 capture require the use of some type of system or unit in order to take CO2 from a low concentration concentration, maybe in the 10% to 15%, and you put a lot of work into making it into a 99% purity stream so that you can either use it for other purposes or pump it underground for sequestration. So there's a lot of energy or a lot of work that's needed in order to concentrate it from a very dilute stream to a very concentrated stream. Because as we all know, when we burn fossil fuels, we're going to produce a CO2 stream, but it's also going to be very laden with nitrogen gases that are present in air or other dilutants. So we're trying to develop a type of technology that somewhat reduces or eliminates that need to concentrate the stream, which is what the whole purpose of the chemical looping technology is. Because there's such a large energy penalty, right? right. And when I was doing the Clean Coal Foundation, we were usually hearing stories like to add carbon capture onto a power plant, the rough rule of thumb, it'd almost be a third of the power that a power plant would produce, right? We call that the parasitic load. Yeah, if you, it's about a third of the power plant. And even if you look at the footprint, of a power plant, if you put a post-combustion CO2 capture process onto it, it would take up almost the equivalent to the size of the boiler itself. So it's a very capital-intensive project. Overall, people have done capital cost assessments. The Department of Energy has done quite a few of them. And they're showing numbers that around 70% increase in the cost of electricity just because of sheer capital cost investment plus the energy penalty with the work required to concentrate that stream. So the big challenge was the parasitic load. How do we capture carbon? without basically having to build a third power plant for every three that we build. And so the department here has come up with a chemical looping technology. Explain to us essentially what that is. Yeah, so the chemical looping concept and what we'll talk about mainly today is the use of type of metal oxide or metal sulfate as a way to take oxygen from air and supply it to the fuel source. This metal oxide as a solid would directly provide oxygen to carbonaceous fuel like fossil fuels like coal or biomass or natural gas and that would convert it to essentially a stream of carbon dioxide and steam and by condensing out the steam you have a very concentrated stream of co2 that doesn't require much more processing where before you need to transport for sequestration or use afterwards 
How do you explain it to your grandmother? How do I explain it to my grandmother? Oh, it's like using rust to provide oxygen to a fuel. But essentially what you're doing is, rather than it being a more energy intensive phenomenon, you're using a metal oxide to do the work that a lot of energy would have been doing. If you are able to remove the nitrogen from air and just directly react it with the carbon like coal to produce a pure stream of CO2, that would eliminate the need for any concentration because you get that pure stream of CO2 directly. Chemical looping is just doing that route, except instead of having to take the oxygen from air directly and pumping it into the fossil fuel, you're actually just taking that oxygen from the metal oxide to do that, that step. And then that produces the CO2, that produces the heat that you need for the process. It's like a non-combustion way of burning the coal. What about the other impurities in feedstocks like coal? You talked about this earlier, that CO2 is a very small component of what you would consider the constituent flue gases that would be coming out of the combustion process. Other things include particulate matter, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide. How are they handled in this process? When we think about the coal industry back in the 1970s, a big part of the research effort was trying to reduce the amount of nitrogen oxides and sulfurs that are emitted to causing acid rain. A lot of the reasons why there's a lot of NOx that's emitted from power plants is one is that there's nitrogen that is inherently available in the coal. And then in addition to that is the temperature that which you operate at. If you operate very high, you can actually take that nitrogen from air and then form nitrogen oxide that can be emitted. In the chemical looping aspect, we are trying to operate at a relatively mild temperature between 1100 or 1000 degrees Celsius so that you don't have the thermal NOx formation that you would have present if you were just burning coal or fossil fuels directly. That NOx that's already present in coal will still be emitted. It'll come out of one of the reactors, which still requires some type of scrubbing to remove that NOx formation. You said you weren't burning as hot. That's something that seems to be a little bit counter to everything we always hear about coal boiler technology. We're mm -hmm. at super critical, the ultra super critical, and what that's basically saying is you're doing it higher temperatures and higher pressures, but you're saying you're more successful when the temperature is less intense? Yeah, ideally for coal combustion, the efficiencies are much greater if you were to operate at very high temperatures. But right now the material limitations limit how high you can raise the boiler, which kind of limits how high of efficiency you can get out of that boiler. Chemical loopy system's a little bit different in that you're able to take the energy and operate at lower temperatures, but then it would be more of a reversible reaction, meaning that you're gonna produce a lot of high quality heat that can go towards generating the steam, and then you can recuperate a lot of the lower temperatures heat to perform your production of CO2 in a separate reactor. But what's really unique about chemical looping, back in the 1950s and 1960s, when they first were coming up with the concepts of chemical looping, they were looking at this from a standpoint of increasing efficiency of uh, traditional circulating fluidized bed boilers, where the fact that they could use this oxygen carrier to perform the reactions with coal at a lower temperature and then produce heat at a very high temperature for steam production was much more efficient than just burning coal directly. Today, we see it as a means of CO2 capture, which we can capitalize on both aspects. There are other technologies out there. You briefly alluded to this. There's a class of technologies collectively called oxycombustion, which replaces air during coal combustion with pure oxygen. Explain how your 
your chemical looping method is different from yeah. the oxy combustion family of technologies. Well, actually, chemical looping combustion falls within the category of oxy combustion, but right. the traditional approach is where you're using molecular oxygen that you separated from air in order to burn with your fossil fuel to produce a stream that's concentrated with steam and CO2. That eliminates the separation of the CO2 from the nitrogen downstream. But the challenge is that you need a cryogenic air separation device. It's not a new technology, it's really mature. But the challenge is the amount of electricity or amount of energy you put in to cool the air down to negative 300 degrees Fahrenheit in order to separate the nitrogen and oxygen from each other. You're using iron to carry oxygen around your system as part of your chemical looping process. Does the iron ever wear out? Does it have to be regenerated? What has to happen to it? The challenge with the chemical B system is that you have this material that's basically taking oxygen from air, donating it to the fuel, and it's cyclic back hundreds to thousands of cycles. In which case, you can imagine that material going from metallic iron, which has a cubic structure, to more of a helical structure for iron oxides. A lot of the research in chemical looping is the key is the particle, how you make it so that it maintains its reactivity, maintains its strength over time. And that was one of the research that we've been forming inside our group, try to make sure the particle can maintain over, right now, 3,000 cycles. How much time is... So that a single particle can last up to at least eight months, but we just stopped the reaction at that point. I'm assuming it can last more than a year. We know that iron's cheap, especially iron filings. Yeah. Is that all it is, or is there special fabrication? Is that expensive? Are there any, is it expensive to do it to your specifications in order to work? Well, it is a synthesized material that we're using. So we do add some ceramics inside of it, but it's nothing like a rare earth elements or any of that material. We do add some ceramics to help with making sure that we can transfer the oxygen more quickly through the material. Then no different than the cement that you have on your roads. You were able to demonstrate this technology. I saw that in some of your white papers. Tell us how those tests went. Yeah, so we have a few demonstrations. In one aspect at the National Carbon Capture Center, we demonstrated this concept for producing hydrogen and CO2. We were trying to take coal and convert it to a pure stream of hydrogen as well as a pure stream of CO2 for either sequestration or use. We built a pilot plant over at the National Carbon Capture Center in uh, Wilsonville, Alabama, and then tied it in with a smaller version of the Kemper County unit for their trig gasifier and used that syngas to produce CO2 and hydrogen from the streams. And we were able to show that we produce a pure stream of CO2 and we're able to get conversions of their syngas to nearly pure stream of CO2. So the results were pretty good last test run that we did. We also built a pilot plant for the purpose of converting coal to CO2 and producing heat. This is the unit we built with Babcox and Wilcox. They built a 250 kilowatt pilot plant version of our chemical looping system. The results are pretty good. Again, we were able to show pure stream of CO2 being produced with heat generation from our air reactor to produce the heat necessary for producing steam. Were there any challenges that you encountered during all that testing? Most of the challenges with any first-of-a-kind technology has to do with how you deal with the startup procedures. You don't really consider the cases when you're heating up, where does the steam condense at, right? <laughs> we just had to put some heat trays and modify a little bit of our particulate filters, but overall it worked out okay. You mentioned the trig gasifier. You did some work with that pilot scale unit that was used, yeah. which eventually became the full-scale Kemper County facility in Mississippi. One of the main criticisms of that Kemper County facility was the fact that they scaled up basically two orders of magnitude from the pilot to commercial phase. And okay. I think a lot of people now that they're kind of doing the lessons learned on that one are, we just scaled up too much. You've heard that, right? Mm -hmm. that, that criticism. Have you thought about that as far as chemical looping is being developed into commercialization? 
innovation? How would that scale up work? If, do you think you would see the same challenges? A lot of companies have this commercialization plan where they scale to a certain size and they feel comfortable with moving larger and larger. So you imagine where you're going from lab scale, you only want to go about 10 times bigger in capacity. But when you get closer to the pilot demonstrations, the field demonstrations, you can take larger jumps. So as far as like their 100 times scale up from the other one, it's not that it hasn't been done in the past, but the reason why they did it was more because of the economy of scale that you can get, right? If you build such a large facility, you can really capitalize on the reduction in your capital cost because you built such a large capacity operations. But the risk that you have there is any incremental increase in cost is actually a substantial amount of money, which is what they've ended up coming across. Learning those lessons from that, how do you think that you guys can succeed with a successful scale up? Well, actually a lot of research these days are leaning towards not trying to build these giant industrial gas plants. They're actually trying to scale down to like more modular operations. I think that's a pretty good pathway for us at this point is trying to look at not necessarily building of next 550 megawatt electric power plant, maybe just build a 10 megawatt, see how it performs and just build stacks of these to do like distributed power generation around the certain neighborhoods, either using biomass as the fuel or local coal as the fuel. Seems like a modular design would reduce the risk of the capital cost investment that if there's any escalation is not going to be a substantial change to that city or that state. And then at the same time, chemical looping itself, since we're using this metal oxide to transfer oxygen from air to the fuel source, it's like oxy combustion, but it doesn't need an air separation unit. It only needs a single unit to produce the CO2 and the heat for steam generation. It in itself is a process intensification approach, which warrants the consideration of a modular design. The major restriction in modularizing these oxy combustion technology is that giant cryogenic air separation device that requires a substantial size to be economical. But if you eliminate the need for that and just use the chemical looping process, you may have decent economics for producing electricity at a smaller capacity. So to commercial size facility, say a unit that was going to be putting out 500 megawatts, did you really see you guys building 10 of these and building a modulary on the same site? I would say that we can at least start off with building 10 megawatt modules to test out and see how well it performs throughout different areas. And then from there, we mature the technology to be able to build these larger facilities if needed. But what we envision with Backcox and Wilcox is a modular design of these 550 megawatt. We would have four or five of these chemical looping reactors stacked together to give you the cumulative of 500 megawatt electric. When I had my interview with the small modular yeah. reactor guy, we talked about possibly retrofitting what we call brownfield sites coal plants and nuclear sites that are already in existence. Do you think it'd be possible to retrofit a brownfield coal site with something like this? And if so, what would get yanked out? Yeah, it would be considered not necessarily retrofit, it considered repowering. A lot of the work with uh, Backcox Wilcox with the coal direct chemical looping process to consider a retrofit scenarios for the chemical looping technology, in which case we would use the same coal preparation devices, the same cleanup systems, and the same utility feeds to the process. The only thing we have to do is rip out the boiler and put in our chemical looping system. The boiler's got to go. The boiler's got to go, but the overall... With the turbines stay and the... Turbines yeah. stay and everything 
thing, so you imagine that the overall footprint of the plant doesn't really change. Granted, the boiler is the heart of the plant, so ripping it out would be ripping out the heart and replacing it with something new. But, crane it in. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we'll, we'll still have to so, still have to do some uh, fitting, but when you do this repowering case, the overall footprint of the plant stays about the same, as opposed to post-combustion CO2 capture, which you basically build on another site to your power plant. And not to knock the guys who are doing the carbon capture work, but I would have to think that it'd be more cost-effective to retrofit the boiler than it would be to add the CCS system at the end. I would say yes, it'll be more cost-effective because we're no longer looking in terms of how much money or energy we're going to lose to power this thing that we built on the side because obviously we have to put a bunch of power in there to try to take the CO2 out. Now what we're just saying is how we make this new boiler work so that we can make the most efficient electricity out of it. So it's kind of different mindsets that you're looking at. But the one thing to also consider is that post-combustion CO2 capture, even though you build a plant next to it, you don't have to shut down the power plant that's already operating, right? You only have to tie in the lines when everything is already built up. Power plant's got to come down in the case of repowering, and then that has to come down until you're done with your chemical looping installation. That could take a long time. It could take a long time. It could be a lot of lost revenue, too. Yeah, that's a good point. We talk about gasification a lot on this program in its different forms. The first time it was brought up was our biomass episode. It was a major point of contention also during my TX series when that utility was trying to build a dozen units in Texas a lot of its critics were like why don't you focus on gasification how does this technology compare to gasification and what are some of the benefits you see yeah. over gasification okay. in the general sense of chemical looping since we're trying to just use this metal to transfer oxygen from air to the fuel technically it can also be done for purpose of gasification too so the one that we're doing with Babcox and Wilcox for is mainly to produce oxycombustion CO2 capture with power generation. Those economies for the purpose of electricity seem to be the most favorable. One of the things we are looking at is using the metal oxide or chemical looping. Since it doesn't require an air separation unit, we can actually gasify biomass too and produce a syngas stream that's not laden by nitrogen that can be used for electricity and chemicals production. Reading up on this, it looks like you were able to process coal biomass, natural gas, and syngas. First of all, did you do lignite or was it just uh, we did, those uh, mid-grade? We did a whole different slates of coal. We did lignite, subbituminous, bituminous, and anthracite, anthracite coals. Yeah. And then what about petroleum coke? Petroleum coke, we did do some tests with. So if we we're looking at the different complexities of each, generally the younger the coal, starting with, or not even coal, starting with biomass, it has <laughs> the most volatile matter. So it's fairly the easiest to convert. And then anthracite is a little less reactive overall because usually we we try to react with the volatile matter to get the most conversions out of our materials. Oh, and your question about pet coke. Yeah, pet coke, we can process them. The challenge there is the sulfur content, actually. So if there's a lot of sulfur in it, it'll end up reacting with our materials. So we have to control the sulfur emissions from two gas outlets in our process. I was interested to see that you also may have a solution for creating hydrogen. Yeah, so with a metal oxide material, it becomes a very good oxidizing agent, meaning that it's able to pick up oxygen from more things than necessarily just oxygen from air, particularly with steam, for instance. If we reduce the material to a low enough oxidation state. It's picking the oxygen out of the water molecules in the steam? Exactly. It's picking it out of the H2O to produce hydrogen directly from the process. It's actually called just the steam iron reaction. So we would send in coal or natural gas or syngas into what we call the reducer reactor. That'll drain the oxygen out of the metal to a metallic state. And then from there, go into another reactor where we 
introduce steam and the steam would provide oxygen back to that metallic iron to produce a pure stream of hydrogen coming out. So could the hydrogen also be basically cogened in the same facility exactly. that's doing? Okay. Yeah. So we're able to use this process to produce high purity hydrogen that can then go to either some kind of gas turbine for electricity generation or it could be for upgrading a chemical plant. And then it has another system where you can provide oxygen to the metal to produce heat for steam generation to drive steam turbines for power generation. Because so you'd be using the coal for both creating hydrogen and for also right. generating heat and making right. electricity right, right. on that. This last question, and this is one where we talked about this a little bit earlier. Yeah. This is a little bit, might be a little bit more fun question. Uh, it, I started out working with coal guys. I've had guests on, including environmentalists who say you have to have coal in the mix and it needs to be carbon free, which certainly is what the mission that you guys are after. We've talked before and you had some strong feelings about what this means for the industry. What does it mean for you to develop a process such as this? I was born and raised in Ohio. So when I first joined Ohio State, my first research topic was on CO2 capture, particularly with coal-fired power plants. The What I find the passion for what we're developing here is it gives an opportunity to make coal economical, but at the same time, carbon conscious. We can find a technology that's able to produce electricity at equivalent to what you produce with natural gas at the similar cost, also without the CO2 emissions involved in the process. Then that gives coal a fighting chance. All right. I'm going to finish up with what I always love doing is the lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. Just very quick answer, starting with natural gas. I believe natural gas is better for chemicals production from the aspect since it's so easy to process and transport. It is definitely an easy fuel to use for electricity generation, but the, one of the challenges building the infrastructure necessary to both provide for both power and heating of homes. But I feel like if we can utilize it more for chemicals production, it can really reduce our cost in that area. Crude oil. Great transportation fuel. However, I feel electric cars may be something coming to at least the United States as a major factor. Nuclear. It's a good place with minimal amount of CO2 emissions. It's a good place for electricity generation. Only challenges on the safety aspects of it. Coal. I definitely feel it's for power generation. It has a lot of stuff in coal that kind of limited to either producing syngas for chemicals or for mainly for power generation. I feel like it's a very good food for power generation. Wind. It's a good renewable energy for electricity generation. I feel like what should fall in that mix that a lot of your experts have talked about in the past. Wind, solar, electricity, but it's really depending on what area and where you live that can be used. Solar. Similar case. It's a great renewable energy. It's just a matter of whether you live in an area that can capitalize on that much solar energy. Biofuels. In the future, I do feel like everything's going to switch over to either renewable energies from hydro and wind and solar. But there still needs to be a carbon source for the purpose of your transportation fuels or chemicals producing. I feel biomass would fit that role. Fuel cells. It's a good way to produce electricity from the hydrogen source or from natural gas and electricity. I do feel it would be a transition means of which to produce electricity before we go into carbon-free emissions. Hydroelectric. Similar to all the renewable fuels, it fits in depending on where you are located to maximize the potential for electricity production. Geothermal. <laughs> it's a similar case. If you live in that area to produce a good amount of electricity, I don't feel any different there. Electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, yeah. You mentioned so, that earlier. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a Department of Energy has a pretty good idea where they're trying to encourage people to purchase electric vehicles so then they can centralize the CO2 emissions to the power plants and then focus their CO2 controls on these localized, hot, concentrated areas. Because right now, the biggest challenge is even if we address the power plants, a lot of the CO2 is still emitted from the transportation 
radiation area. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is just like any other technology developed in a chemical loop and still maturing. I think that right now the challenge is the amount of energy they need to put in is greater than the amount of energy they're getting out. And so until that's taken care of and still the idea of like how much capital cost investments needed, it still has a way to go. But if that works, then we're all out of business, right? <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. All right, Andrew Tong, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Jay. You bet. That was Andrew Tong, assistant research professor at The Ohio State University in Columbus. The chemical looping effort at OSU is under the guidance of Dr. L.S. Fan, one of the world's preeminent authorities on chemical looping. Their research was aided by funding from the Department of Energy, and we certainly look forward to seeing how this technology progresses. Special thanks again to Andrew for taking me around the school and checking out the equipment. You can find pictures of that and more on Instagram at Host Energy and online at Energy cast.com All guests are sent the raw and finished recordings the week of release to ensure they are represented accurately. So far, no complaints. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 23. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how waste heat is being tapped for cooling. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.